As you know, Christians around the world use this term Good Friday to remind them of today, especially the day that Jesus was crucified. But what was so good about Good Friday? Well, it's a very special day because with the crucifixion, you would not, uh, if you didn't have the crucifixion, you wouldn't have the resurrection. If you didn't have day number one, you wouldn't have day number three, and there wouldn't be any Christianity as a whole. And so, so Good Friday actually commemorates the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth at his death there at Calvary. And followers of Christ follow this day, follow the well-documented events of this day of Good Friday to conclude that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the one that the world had been waiting for, for he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that is what is so good about Good Friday. But how can we know? How can we know that, that the one that we read about in the Bible, the one that, that who, who claimed that he was the Son of God, Son of Man he called himself, how can we know that he was who he claimed he was? Was he really God's Son? Well, those who are familiar with it, they would be able to say that in the Old Testament we have over 300 prophecies that point directly to the Messiah. And that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills every single one of them. Every single one. Now, if you're watching from home, there's a few of you there, but many of you are here in the room. It's March Madness season. And those of you who are not into ball sports, I'm talking about NCAA basketball. And in NCAA basketball, at the end of the game, it's a really exciting game. The two teams are really close to each other. The best part about March Madness is when at the end of the game, at the buzzer, one of the teams shoots, and you want to know whether it went in. And the game gets that much better if at the end of the game, they're that much farther away, and he has to shoot at the buzzer. And if he scores, they win, or they go into overtime. And the farther back and the farther away you get, the better and more exciting that it gets. Do you know what the odds are of making a buzzer beater shot? Particularly the odds of a buzzer beater shot from more than the half court or beyond. The odds are one in 100. One out of 100 times, ESPN did the statistics, one out of 100 times when someone pulls up for the jumper at the end of the game or at any time during the game, if they're beyond the half court mark, one out of 100 times the ball goes in. Now, one out of a hundred times. Now, what we're going to do this evening is talk about the prophecies that Jesus fulfills and why that's important for us. So I want to show you in a little bit different way what I'm talking about. So I have here a die. If I had two of them, they would be dice. There are six sides to a die. I can roll this die, and when I roll it or when I spin it here for you, if I want to stop it, let's say, on the number three. Did that come out to you? Amazing. So the number three, if I want to stop that on the number three, I have a one in six chance of that happening. The odds of that happening when I spin that and have it come and try to stop it on a three, I wasn't there, is a one in six. Now if I do this multiple times, so I have a one in six chance the first time. Now for me to get a three the second time, now it becomes a one in 36 
chance. You starting to pick up on this? After that, the numbers get more and more difficult. After that, it's a one and I think 217 or something like that. I lost it in my head. I had it for a while, but now I've lost it. After that, I know the next number is 1,296. That's four times. After that, the number is 7,776. If you try to get a three six times in a row, the odds of that are one in 46,756. That's the odds of just trying to roll a three six times. Now, what I want to say about that, the InterVarsity uh, Christian Fellowship in Pasadena City College sponsored a class in Christian evidence led by a man uh, who is a mathematics and astronomy professor named Peter W. Stone. And what he did is that one of the tasks of this class was to consider the evidence provided by just eight prophecies. Just eight prophecies, specifically the prophecies regarding Jesus being born. Eight prophecies that talked through that and talking about what, even if they were the most conservative of their estimates, what would the odds of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and what are the various conditions that would be in place that might affect the probability of a man actually fulfilling those eight prophecies. And Professor Stoner concluded that the chances of those eight prophecies, like these ones that we're talking about, all specific to his birth, by sheer chance would be one and one to ten to the seventeenth power. So that's one zero 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 to seventeen zeros. That's what the odds are fulfilling eight prophecies by a man. That would be eight prophecies. So he said to, to use an example so that you would understand what that means. He says, if you take a half dollar, and this is not a half dollar, but it's almost the size of that. I said, if you filled up a space with half dollars and stacked them up knee deep, and you went into that space to try to find it, the space that would need to be, if you were blindfolded and walked in and had to find the marked half dollar, you would have to walk into a space the size of Texas. Walk in blindfolded, walk in and pick the exact coin that had been chosen for you. That would be if there was eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Just to double that, to say what if there was, what if there was 16 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. You would have to find the same half dollar and you would have to be able to walk on the face of the sun and pick up that half dollar. That's the size and scale of what it looks like for Jesus to fulfill 16 prophecies and Jesus fulfills 300 prophecies, friends, and counting. So tonight what I want you to see is that's actually what is so beautiful about Good Friday. Good Friday is all about the good news of the gospel, that God actually fulfills his promises completely. You see, Christ secures our salvation completely. And as the hymn says, how firm a foundation is Jesus our Lord. We are firm if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We believe that when he went to the cross, that he took our sins to the cross and took care of it there. We can believe that with security. I want you to listen to a couple of verses spoken by the Apostle Paul when he prays this. This is Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 17 says, That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know that the love of Christ, which passage knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of 
of God. What a prayer. What he is doing here, the prayer the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm praying that you can comprehend something that is absolutely impossible to comprehend. It passes beyond knowledge. I want you to know something that is impossible for you to know. And you're not going to be able to know it unless the Lord himself, through Jesus Christ, reveals it to you. And the only way that we're going to get to that revelation is in the cross. Let's see if you can picture this. You see, width and length, left and right, they are horizontal. And depth and height, they go up and down. That is vertical, horizontal, deep and wide. Do you see what is being shown here? It's a picture of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Deeper and wider than we could ever imagine, and yet simple and clear enough for us to have it accessible to every man, every woman, and every child. That is the beautiful mystery. And today, Good Friday, this weekend, Easter, I pray that you might understand the beautiful mystery of Christ. If you're watching from home or if you walked into the room this evening, you don't know who I am, I'd love the opportunity to introduce myself to you. My name is Pastor Milo, and we've been working through here as a church, we've been working through the life of David. We started earlier this spring, and we've been studying the life of David the king. He is a man who has more written about him in ancient literature than any other person, and that's not just in the Bible, that's in all of ancient literature to have something written about you. There's more in, in the Bible about David than in all of the ancient texts about any other person, and he is a man who's been given this title, a man after God's own heart. And when we study his life, we find out that he is the Jewish king. He is the Jewish king. And when we study the writings and we look at the writings of Samuel, we find out the storyline. We find out the narrative of what happened to him. Samuel documents what happens to King David and much of the activities of his life. But we also have access to David's journal. We also have access to his personal poetry, and it's archived for us in the book of Psalms. So if you've got your Bible this evening or you want to take the pew Bible in front of you, would you find your way to the book of Psalms? It's the center of your Bible. If you go right to the middle, open it up, you're going to find this. And we're going to start this evening looking at his journal from Psalm 21. This is a high point in David's life. When David is writing a psalm of praise to God for the victories that the Lord has granted to him as the Jewish King. Psalm 21, beginning in verse 1, goes like this. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories that you give. You had granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him for length of days, forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. Now this entry in the king's journal is one that is full of happiness and full of joy. And full of excitement. Now, if you were looking over his shoulders, he is writing in this jury. You said, David, you're, you're feeling strong today, aren't you? You're feeling good about yourself today, aren't you? Well, tonight we're going to turn the page. We're going to go from Psalm chapter 21 to Psalm chapter 22, where David is not in a happy place. No, David is in anguish. 
And if you look closer, you'll see that this is one of those psalms. As we read through it tonight, you almost feel as though we are actually standing on holy ground. You see, Psalm 22 is one of the most remarkable psalms among the entire collection of psalms. There's 150 of them that we can look at, but this one is so powerfully and so beautifully and so movingly written, and it describes in such prophetic terms the sufferings of Jesus that we absolutely must pay attention to what's going on here. And here's why. David lived and died a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth was ever born. A thousand years before he was ever born. And so what David has to say here, the prophecy of what he is going to speak, when Jesus fulfills that prophecy, you've got to understand that there's something supernatural happening there. That even while Jesus is on the cross, he is going to speak the words that we read in Psalm 22. So let's begin in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We better stop right there. This psalm begins abruptly with a disturbing scene. Someone here who knows and trusts God is forsaken, and he's crying out to God in absolute agony. This is a psalm of David, and there are many instances in David's life. Again, if we go back and look at the narrative of what's happening elsewhere in Scripture, when we look, there might be different times that he would write this agonizing poem. But before and and after he has, has taken the throne of Israel, there are multiple times where David has lived in seasons of great danger or great deprivation. But while this psalm might have certainly been true about David the king himself writing about his own experiences, it is even that much truer of Jesus the Messiah than it is of David. Jesus deliberately chooses these words while hanging on the cross to describe the agony that he is going through. So we could easily imagine, if you will, a situation where King David experiences this moment. Many times he finds himself in seemingly impossible circumstances and wondered, why wouldn't God have rescued him immediately from these impossible circumstances? But Jesus, he had known great pain and great suffering, both physical and emotional, during his life. Yet the reason why he's going to state these words is because never in his entire life had he known separation or alienation from God, his Father. At the moment that Christ is going to speak these words and he is going to experience something that he on this earth as a human had never yet experienced. There's a significant sense in which Jesus rightly feels suddenly forsaken by God the Father while he is there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries and my anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, there was a holy transaction that took place. You know, God the Father regarded himself, and he looked at God the Son for the first time, Jesus Christ, as a sinner. 
as the Apostle Paul would later write, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. And that one distinguishing factor of sin is that sin will separate us from a relationship with God. Our sin leaves us feeling and leaves David and leaves Jesus all feeling the same way, forsaken and alone. His groaning was unanswered. His cry was ignored. His sin is a barrier between him and God. Verse 6, But I am a worm, and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. They hurl insults, it says here. When this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, his enemies don't realize that their mockery, they actually are identifying themselves as the scornful enemies of God and his anointed. As they are saying these very things, they are fulfilling the prophecy. They are marking themselves as an enemy, as mockers of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah there on the cross. In Matthew 27, 43, onlookers will mock He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. Jump down to verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. They surround me, he says. The forsaken one again describes his crisis. He is describing the people tormenting as as strong bulls of Bashan or large animals who are proverbially known for their strength. They surround him and they threaten him. Charles Spurgeon puts the dots and connects the dots this way. He says this, The priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, and rulers, and all the captains, they all began bellowing around the cross like wild cattle. They were well fed. They were full of strength and fury. They stamped and they foamed around the innocent one, that Jesus, and longed to gore him to death with their cruelties. They surround me. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. My dry bones, my dry mouth, my dry tongue. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see that we are made from the dust of the earth, and what? That dust we shall once return. And this is describing with such physical extremity that David would be describing himself in his time and his day, but it's an amazingly specific prophecy of the future suffering of Jesus on the cross. David would not know, again, David is 1,000 years in the past. He would not know anything about the practice of Roman crucifixion of the day of Jesus Christ. But he describes the physical agony of it with the accuracy that could only come from a prophet of the Lord. He is describing his dry bones. He is describing the way that his bones are being pulled and stretched out of joint, his dry mouth, 
as dry tongue. Verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Alarms, friends, should be going off right now for you. When you read these words, they pierce my hands, they pierce my feet. So perhaps David here is referring to some wounds that he received in a struggle against his enemies in his own day, in his own time, in his own struggles. But in any regard, hundreds of years later, that Romans would now adopt the Persian practice of crucifixion. The prophet David is now describing exactly what the wounds of crucifixion would look like, that the Son of God would bear thousand years before it were to happen. Verse 17, all of my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. He says they stare and they gloat. Jesus' tormentors did not allow him the dignity of private suffering. He was exposed in all ways, emotionally, physically exposed to their stare. Jesus was the focus of mocking and humiliation, and he hung there naked, or certainly very close to being naked, there on the tree for the entire world to see. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. Your strength, you are my strength. Come quickly to help me. They divide my clothes, he says. In David's day, the king was so humbled before his adversaries that they took his clothes. He was so powerless against him that they took his clothes and they used it for themselves to demonstrate their power over him, to humiliate him. However, as within all these other aspects of Psalm 22, it was fulfilled even that much more literally in the experience that Jesus had, more so than in the life of David. As Jesus hung there, naked or certainly nearly naked on the cross. Soldiers gambled. They cast lots for his clothing right there, right in front of him at the very foot of the cross. Matthew 27 verse 35 says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember, we said, David, he is the Jewish king. But Pilate, when he puts that sign up there, those Roman guards, when they put the sign up there, are saying even more, this is Jesus. He's King of the Jews. He's the one that you've been waiting for. And there Jesus hangs, brutally beaten spit on and mocked by everyone there, his clothes in a pile being pulled back and forth by those who are casting lots for it. As he had dragged his own cross up the road to Golgotha, they mocked him and spit upon him. As he hangs there, there is blood running down his face because of the thorns that have been crammed into his skull, the crown of thorns. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They mocked him. Wounds are covering every inch of his body. 
How deep, how wide is the love of Jesus Christ? You see, there hung Jesus, elevated for all to see, with criminals posted up in a similar fashion on either side of him. And in the same way, Scripture tells us, even the criminals who were crucified with him began to mock him and intensely yell things at him. It was truly an ugly scene in every possible way. But you see, Psalm 22 serves not only as a prophecy concerning what Jesus suffered on Good Friday, but it also serves as a sign pointing to the true meaning and the true reason behind Christ's suffering on the cross. That Jesus would be bearing all of our sins, all of our miseries. And years, hundreds of years after David, the prophet Isaiah was given a prophetic word concerning Jesus and His ministry. Isaiah writes this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him, the punishment that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. And by His wounds, Isaiah says, we are are healed. You see, Jesus took all of David's sorrows, everything that David was experiencing there when he writes Psalm 22, he takes all of his sorrows and Jesus bears them on the cross. Jesus takes upon himself all the sins and all the miseries of David. He takes all the sins and all the miseries of all the human race and bears it upon himself there on the cross. This means that if you are a believer, if you believe in who Jesus Christ is, that He is the one that He says He is, Jesus took all of your sin and all of your misery as well there on the cross. How deep, how wide is the love of Christ? How did He do that? Well, now, because of our sin. Jesus was not only ugly and repulsive for for man to look at, for us to look at, but he was repulsive and ugly to look at for God the Father as well. Why? Because he looked like sin. And there, there was a rip in the garment, a tear from heaven to earth in the holy fabric of time, a divide torn between the love of God, the Father, and the love that the Son had for the Father, something tore in between, and darkness covered all of the earth. That darkness is recorded as far away from Jerusalem as Greece and even Rome. Jesus was utterly and completely alone. And Jesus, who said very little during all of that time as he carried the cross up the hill, as he was scourged publicly with the cat of nine tails, all that he was torn apart. Now the pain of the cross is too much when sin and God's wrath is poured out on him. He screams out in agony. Verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as he speaks the words, suddenly the darkness lifts. 
And Jesus is about to say one more thing. He must speak. In fact, God the Father in heaven, as he is looking down, he is waiting for him to speak. There is something that he must say. The people who are there listening, they need to hear this one thing that he is going to say. And just like was prophesied, his mouth is wooden and he can't seem to get the words out long past the point of dehydration. But finally, finally Jesus is able to struggle out the words, I thirst. And one of the soldiers soaked in a sponge with some vinegar and put it on a stick and he puts it up to Jesus' lips and he moistens the mouth of Jesus. Long at last could he say it what the heavenly Father was expecting and waiting for him to say, what all the people needed to say, loud and clear, ringing out through the whole hillside, what God had been waiting for him to hear. It is finished. It's finished. It's finished. Do you know that? It's finished, friends. Jesus did it. You don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. And Jesus never finished anything. Jesus never did anything halfway. Jesus didn't heal halfway. No, no leper ever came back to him and said, you didn't do a, a complete job. Can you, can you finish the process? No blind man was ever healed with a vision incompletely. No, when he came back, he was able to see and see perfectly. Jesus did not teach halfway. The greatest minds in all the world continue to pour over what Jesus talked and, and, and be incredibly surprised by the depths at which his great teaching is so, so rich. You see, Jesus did not heal halfway. Jesus did not teach halfway. Jesus did not redeem halfway. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It is finished. You see, this truly is the beautiful mystery of Christ. In many ways, I hope that as you turn those pages, as you look at Psalm 22, that you're set back a little bit. You're, you're, you're a bit stunned by the remarkable consistency that you're seeing in Psalm 22. This song that David wrote, this poetry that he wrote that was absolutely real to him in his day, yet the prophecy that God spoke through his words was so undeniably true on so many levels for Jesus Christ. And this Jesus of Nazareth was able to fulfill it through and through in the events of good Friday and the crucifixion there on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Our hope is secure in Christ, deeper and wider than we ever could possibly imagine, and yet so simple and so clear that every man, every woman, and every child can capture it. What a beautiful mystery. So this Good Friday, this Easter, I pray that you would understand the mystery of Christ. I pray that this Good Friday, this Easter, that you would find it beautiful, the mystery 
of Christ. Let us not forget. Let us be people who remember and remember well. For it is finished. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for King David and the way that you used his ability to write music, to write poetry, Lord, to share his life in this way. Lord, you used it to speak truth to us generations later. And so, Lord, as we are wowed and awed by the beauty and the complexity of all that you did and the way that you fulfilled completely the prophecies that were put out before you. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of that perfection, the mystery that it is. Lord, teach us to remember that here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your fulfillment through Christ. It is finished. Amen. Amen. As we've been looking at Psalm 22 tonight, we see that King David was forsaken. He was insulted, surrounded, parched, pierced, stared and gloated over, and stripped. And then as we've been looking at, Matthew in his account, in his gospel, specifically mentions that Jesus was forsaken, insulted, surrounded, parched, pierced, stared and gloated over, and stripped. It's almost as if Matthew is trying to tell us something, show us something, that this great king of Israel, David, has been fulfilled. That the new David has come, and he will walk the path that David walked, but he will walk it for all of us. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to see those connections. But here's the thing. There is a turn in Psalm 22. If you, if you read the whole psalm, there's actually this turn right in verse 19 where it goes from the descriptions of all that David will go through to now starting after in verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far away from me. It's almost as if there's this cry in his heart in the midst of it all. Lord, don't be far from me. And then the rest of the psalm, this psalm that we've been looking at tonight that's so heavy and dark and gruesome, ends up with adoration and praise and actually thanksgiving. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And it concludes, this Psalm 22 concludes with these words in verses 31. It concludes with this promise to future generations, like you and like me, that says this, future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Or perhaps another translation might be, it is finished. You see, it's not the end of the story. Even in the psalm itself that we looked at tonight, it's not the end of the story. Because Good Friday remembers the darkest day in human history the fulfilled king who walked the path of David in his suffering. And yet it's not the end of that story either. There's a turn, a shift that happens. God is with us. And Matthew continues to record that actually in the Good Friday, or in the uh, Last Supper narrative. He actually kind of writes that in, that turn, that two parts, 
like we've looked at today in Psalm 22. Because when we take communion, we actually do remember the suffering of Christ. So I invite you, if you have your packet tonight, if you have your communion elements, grab that and grab the bread, the wafer at the top there. I invite you to do that now. Again, as Matthew's trying to tell this story, as Matthew's trying to connect all these pieces, he shares with us that Jesus, in instituting the Lord's Supper, both parts are there. The suffering and the joy and the thanksgiving and the adoration. And so at first, uh, uh, Jesus takes bread. So if you have your bread, hold it with me. And in Matthew 26, he says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He broke it. David was broken. Jesus, the next day, would be broken. He broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. When we come around the table, friends, we remember a Jesus whose body was broken, pierced, forsaken, insulted, surrounded, parched, pierced, stared and gloated over and stripped for us. Let's remember that now. But friends, it's not the end of the story. And even around that table that night, Jesus wanted the disciples to know that, that it's not the end of the story. Psalm 22 has a second half. It has a second half. And so after the supper is over, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, will you be with me? And he says, I will be with you again. I I'm doing something here. I'm putting it all back together. And so every time you do this, remember, not just that my body was broken, but that someday we're going to drink it again in my Father's kingdom. There is a verse 19 in the chapter. There is a verse 19 in Psalm 22. There is a second half. The story is not over. Would you take the cup with me? And let's remember together that the story is not over. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that on this Good Friday that you fulfilled all, all 300 plus in yourself. And even in this one psalm that we see, that you fulfilled it all for us. So we recognize in the brokenness of your body we recognize the sacrifice you made on our behalf. And we also remember, Lord, that the story is not over. And day three from now, we will celebrate it anew.